Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Phil Craig. And I'm Andrew Loney. And together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandalmongers podcast. Andrew, here we are again. We are, and I think a very important uh, uh, podcast this time, very important issue which very few people will really know about, but should know about. Yeah, um, people in Australia, I think, will know about this. We have, thankfully, quite a few fans down there, but most people outside the country have never heard of this man, Ben Robert Smith, this uh, war hero, who, well, it turns out, possibly as fees of clay. Yeah, no, it's a fantastic piece of of, of journalism. Uh, and I'm really keen to hear how it was done. And I think also a very long legal case. Uh, so it sort of comes to our through our theme of, of, of good investigative journalism being used to speak truth to power, basically. I totally agree. This with man that. was backed by huge media Media organisations, uh, and it must be a pretty frightening prospect to to try and take him on. Yep. In a minute, we're going to be talking to my old friend Chris Masters. I'm very proud to call him that um, about this extraordinary story of Ben Robert Smith. Um, I, I want to do my update. Can I do my update, please? I yes, it, I yes. I'm always intrigued to hear what people have to say about us. Well, um, first of all, we're good thing. We are over 900 in our endless quest to get people. Great. We, we want people to subscribe on YouTube, even if you don't listen to us on YouTube, because once we get to a thousand, it really does change the game for us. And we're now at nine hundred and two. Um, so that's great. Good. Well, let's hope just that final little bit, because it's, as Phil says, this will allow us to do a lot more. Uh, I mean, perhaps even go into a studio one day. Oh, that'd be nice. I haven't done that for a while. Um, but I'm afraid we've had our re- first really bad review, a real stinker. Um, are you feeling psychologically strong, Andrew? Yes, I haven't I haven't read it yet. So. Well, I'm afraid you know this this what this shook me shook me to the core. Um, a lot of people said very nice things about um, the program last week with William Dalrymple. But I'm afraid somebody on TikTok said listening to these men makes me think of unclipped nose hair and stained corduroy trousers. 
<laughs> well, here we are in shirt sleeves. <laughs> I have no facial bit of uh, facial growth. <laughs> well, I don't know. Anybody want to have a look? No, no, let's not go there. But I think they should just go to anyway, Spotify. Anyway, look, I'm showing the like audience that. now. This is X-rated. <laughs> age-appropriate shorts for a gentleman of a certain age, not corduroy trousers. Exactly. And a, and a cool exactly. Australian T-shirt. Anyway, look, sorry there, about that. There was a bit of controversy. I mean, there was a certain amount of social media uh, controversy about well, William Dalrymple saying there's there's more to the story than perhaps he presents, which we've always said. You know, we like to present lots of different points of view. Indeed. Uh, but, um, you know, in some ways we'd like to just drop in and drop out of subjects. There's so many we want to cover. Uh, um, and we can't get into the nitty-gritty sometimes of some of these debates. That's right. Well, um, Chris Masters, very quickly, for people who don't know Chris, um, he's a legend in the world of Australian journalism. I was lucky enough to work with him when I lived and worked for the ABC, the national broadcaster there. But even I didn't quite understand what a big deal he is. What, this is a true story. We, we didn't meet to his house. We'd met him, met him and his family and had barbecues there. But then we were in Melbourne at a museum of media and history. There's like a whole wig of this museum dedicated to Chris um, because he'd made some incredible programs, one of which in the late 80s literally brought down the government of Queensland, the entire state. So he's, a serious, he's a serious player. Um, and this story he's investigated about these alleged war crimes. And we should say, you know, it's a, it's a legal process. As you'll hear, um, he won a case that was brought against him. There might be an appeal. Um, so we're, he's going to report what he believes to be true and what a judge believed was the case in a civil court. Um, but this case has attracted attention from other militaries too. The British apparently have been looking closely because there are allegations that special forces in Afghanistan went way too far from multiple countries. Um, well, it's been a big question, as you say. I mean, I remember uh, uh, as an agent covering a couple of these stories, and and I know the Mail came very close to running a story about about this. Very hard sometimes to to prove, but I think you know certainly if there are bad apples, I think the army wants to to root them out because it's it's bad for their moral authority and it's bad, I think, in practical terms. How can you win the hearts and minds of people if you if you're shooting them or quite unnecessarily? Quite agree. Well, I think that's probably all people need to know. What do you say, Andrew? I think we've set it up, uh, and I think Chris will probably take us through very, very lucidly. I'm sure he will. All right. Um, I do apologise for showing my knees. Here we go to Chris. Speak to you soon. Well, thank you for joining us, Chris. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, too. I was just telling Andrew of your elevated role in the pantheon of Australian journalism. Um, so I hope your ears were burning. But um, what a... <laughs> On a more personal level, and it's a great Australian story for me, I think the first time you cook, cook to be a barbecue, um, and you're as good a barbecuer as you are a reporter, um, you, you, you told me not to wander too much down the, the, the driveway because earlier that day you'd seen some death adders. Death adders, yes. Yeah. No, we have them in, uh, on our block. They're pretty fearsome. Uh, I haven't seen one for a while, but one time we actually had a soldier, a veteran from Afghanistan here, and, uh, I, you know, whereas in Afghanistan, he had a terrific eye for the IEDs that were saying, you know, the roadside bombs. He developed a talent for it. Indeed, he got blown up on one occasion. Um, in, in Here in Australia, I've got an eye, eye, eye for the death adders. I watch out for them because they're sneaky little buggers. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, I spotted one on the path and he got a hell of a fright. And uh, he emailed me the next day and said he was suffering from post-traumatic 
death out of disorder. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, uh, that's that's a very Australian story. Um, and let's get into the the more serious one, which is this remarkable. And congratulations, by the way, on what happened in court. Uh, a lot of our listeners won't know much about about the story. Um, could you just kind of give us a very brief intro to who this guy is and how he first became the subject of public attention, I suppose? Yes. Well, he, he's almost literally larger than life, uh, seven foot tall and bulletproof. Uh, the Anzac legend come to life. Uh, ben Robert Smith, VCMG, the most decorated living soldier in Australia, the son of a, a judge and a major general, uh, not the classic Charles Bean, Aussie digger from the bush, you know, private school educated, came from an uh, elite Perth family, um, and then, then ha- had the the you know the silver bullet ride. He uh, not only returned from Afghanistan, our most decorated soldier, but he was then mentored by one of Australia's billionaires, Kerry Stokes, a, a media magnet. He runs the the Seven Network, and. Uh, so uh, Ben Robert Smith was then catapulted from humble corporal to managing director of the Seven Network in uh, in Queensland. So you know he his influence reached well beyond his military career. And when did people first begin to think that this hero may have feet of clay? Well, within the SAS, you know, he was a controversial figure, a divisive figure. But as you know, it's a secretive institution. So those secrets didn't leak out. I mean, uh, to some degree, there were hints of it. Even when it was it was uh, announced that someone was to receive a Victoria Cross, uh, there was a story in the paper saying they understood that it was going to go to this renowned bully. And uh, I, I think that you know, he, he got his first medal, the Medal for Gallantry, in uh, after an action in 2006, then the Victoria Cross in 2010, and then another medal, a leadership medal, Commendation for Distinguished Service in 2012. Um, by, by 2013, soldiers in Perth were beginning to complain and uh, in in Canberra, the, the the headquarters of the Australian Defence Force, uh, the rumours began to circulate. Essentially, among uh, the the chaplains, you know, who heard a lot, uh, the psychologists who probably heard much more, uh, to some degree, the intel staff. But you would characterise it all as rumour. I mean, I heard a lot of it, but. In the early stages, it wasn't so much characterised as war crimes, but stories of a, a bullying individual who was uh, disliked and uh, was held responsible for the trashing of young soldiers' careers. Um, they were pretty slow to, to invoke uh, war crimes because, of course, bad publicity affected them all. So I think they, they pretty much held back from that. But then I think the rumours got so hot that in around about 2015, the... Uh, the Defence Force decided to have an inquiry, an independent inquiry, the Inspector General's inquiry, run by uh, another Major General and a, a, a Supreme Court judge, uh, Paul Brereton. And uh, and that's when the, the, the rumours began to harden into fact. And, of course, at that same time, I was writing a book. It was the only book uh, that's really been written on Australian Special Forces in, in Afghanistan. And... Uh, 
And I began to hear some of those rumours too. It wasn't until about 2017 that I began to, to learn of the first evidence of war crimes, alleged war crimes, and it's only now in the last month that that long uh, battle has at this stage anyway been resolved. I mean, some people listening to this who don't know you as well as I do might think, oh, who is this left-wing agitating hack journalist who's trying to tear down the military? Typical um, whinging, um, whinging kind of pinko liberal. And I, you know, would, and I just think we should explain before we go any further that you've written lots of books and done lots of work with the army, and you're in no way that caricature. No, well, thank you for that. And I think there's a great irony here. In journalism, we tend to think that the purest form of the trade is conducted outside the tent, you know, the guerrilla journalist, uh, rather than the journalist who was in the press pack or being led around by the nose by a military public affairs officer. I mean, I embedded three times in Afghanistan with the ADF, uh, the last time with uh, Special Forces, which was absolutely remarkable. They would not let journalists anywhere near them. And clearly they did on this occasion because they trusted me. And I suppose they trusted me for a good reason, and that is that I pretty much trusted them. To be honest with you, Phil, I really uh, – I, I couldn't say I'm absolutely shocked that I learned that Australians were responsible for war crimes – but but I, I didn't see it in the national character. I sort of held to a rather romantic view that uh, there was something in the national character that suited the peacekeeping role. You know, we like to think of ourselves as, as tough and fair. And I worked with the Australian soldiers. I went out on patrol with them. I, I recognised that courageous restraint. I'd done a lot of work with Australian soldiers over the years, I was in Rwanda and I saw that courageous restraint again. Uh, in Somalia, you know, I saw them protecting the innocent. Um, in uh, East Timor, I remember a family coming up to me and saying, your soldiers are so wonderful. You know, the Indonesian soldiers, they use their uniforms to pillage and uh, do worse. And, 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 you know, but your soldiers are here to protect us. We're astonished. So... I had a rather comfortable view of them. I used to say to them, look, if I see anything, hear anything that's in the public interest that's not necessarily in your interest, don't think I won't report it. But I don't think I actually thought it would ever happen. Uh, and, and so the irony comes in the fact that it was because I was inside the tent and I was trusted and they knew I wasn't a scandal monger and out to tear them down that they began to confide in me. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. Andrew, while you were away, sorry, you're having your normal technical problems. Oh, God. <laughs> well, Chris was just explaining how the story first emerged really through rumours of bullying, which then became stories of alleged war crimes. And then I guess you got involved, Chris. I mean, were, you, were you driving this investigation or are you mostly reporting it or a mixture of the two? Well, I I uh, I was a reporter on the ABC Four Corners program, the same as your Panorama program. In fact, the, I had the longest run of anybody. I was there for 25 years. But in uh, 2009, I pretty much left. At that stage, I'd done a couple of reports from Afghanistan, and and one of them, uh, uh, the two soldiers who were right beside me, uh, slept beside them that night. They, they were killed that day when we were out on patrol 
Um, so, you know, if you like, I was kind of emotionally connected too because I, I felt that unlike many civilians, I actually knew what it was like to come home and kiss my wife and, you know, and, and cuddle my grandkids, whereas, they, you know, they would never come home again. They would never have grandkids. So, so I, 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 I had a, an un, unusual commitment, I think, uh, but anyway, that led to me writing some books, uh, and the, the No Front Line book was the the big account of the the twelve odd years that Australia uh, operated in Afghanistan, our, our longest war, as we call it. Probably the same with you, um, I guess not. Um, but anyway, um, um, we um, it was in the course of, of doing the No Front Line book right at the final stages of it, frankly, that I began to hear stories of, of war crimes. Uh, it was pretty hard to put them in the book. Some of them went in, but I got straight away involved in a, a rather tortured court battle, which meant that there was a lot of limits to what I said. But uh, but I teamed with a colleague. I'd, I'd long worked with another a much younger reporter, uh, Nick McKenzie, who was, you know, the the drum, the Trump investigative reporter at the Age newspaper? Um, and I said to Nick in 2017, "Look, there's a big story here." Um, so from 2018 onwards, we pursued it. Got to a point mid 2018 that we had enough to publish, but of course, uh, that at that caused a firestorm. Um, you know, it's a very hard story to tell war uh, hero uh, is exposed as war criminal it's not only hard to to stack up with uh, the facts and extracting them from a very secretive community and dealing with the fact that you know afghanistan was an impossible scenario you couldn't really go there and and dig up evidence um and then add that to the fact that it wasn't really a story that the australian public was too eager to hear. Uh, I mean, we love our heroes. We love our Anzac heroes in particular. So Nick and I absolutely copped it for a couple of years. It was a very brave act on the part of the Age newspaper and the Sydney Morning Herald, um, since taken over by the Nine Network. Uh, but I think one of the great calls in the history of the news industry that that they did what we were supposed to do. You know, um, I, I think. Uh, I'd like to think that our role is sometimes to challenge the public uh, and uh, that's the most responsible thing that we can do. Uh, we definitely got into a brawl with the, the billionaire media proprietor, Kerry Stokes, who, of course, ran the rival network, the Seven Network, and uh, Brendan Nelson, the head of the Australian War Memorial, Dr Brendan Nelson, now based in London at Boeing, he um, he took up the cudgels very much for uh, Ben Robert Smith, and and was commonly in the news lamenting, you know, where is the public interest in tearing down our heroes? And uh, so we come. I felt we were kind of in a no man's land in, in a way. Um, the the sacred digger can do no wrong. Story is the story that resonates in Australia. Uh, Australia is very attached to it, its its limited military history. Uh, the Anzac tradition, it's almost like a, a secular religion. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's it, the Anzac Day is a, is a kind of a national day. So I think it was very hard for people to accept that um, 
that 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 myth uh, it was indeed myth, not not based on on very much fact at all. Shall we a little bit of some of the detail that came out? Um, I mean, I was just doing a little bit of background research for the interview today, and I'd not heard of this Spartan killing, for example, or blooding the rookies. I mean, it seems that Robert Smith, oh, at least he's alleged to have created it, almost like a sort of warrior cult around himself. I mean, is there any of that yes. to share with us now? Well, the, when I first learned of war crimes, I, they, they fell into three categories. The first was what what we uh, we called um, what you call in say policing loading. You know that is sort of placing a weapon on a person to make out that they've uh, they, they've they've been involved in criminality. So this sort of thing was was going on in Afghanistan. They were routinely taking it afield uh, uh, implements like a there was a Russian pistol called. The Makarov and the magic Makarov kept turning up on corpses, you know, uh, and um, and mostly they would use an ICOM radio, a little handheld radio, indicated that somebody was pr- probably involved in uh, uh, in combat, and uh, so this uh, th- this business of, of you know planting weapons on people was common. As was blooding. Now, interesting uh, for your audience, uh, there, there's a strong theory that the, the blooding came out of uh, 22 Squadron SAS um, or SBS uh, and in, to some degree Northern Ireland. Um, I think Andrew Urban wrote that book, Big Boys Rules, where, you know, the feeling was that you just didn't leave a combatant alive on the battlefield because uh, the justice system was too slow and inefficient. And if you didn't knock them off, then they'd come and knock you off later. Um, so uh, that that uh, that secret deal that seemed to be struck in some quarters of special forces, I think beyond the Australians, frankly, that it wasn't wise to to leave a, a combatant alive. Um, so uh, there was a, 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 a an ex British SBS uh, patrol commander who was Robert Smith's uh, superior, and in the court case he gave evidence, and he was commonly uh, accused by some of the other soldiers of of having this practice of what he called blooding the rookie. And, uh, and, and, and a couple of those uh, rookies uh, ended up giving evidence in court. Um, he, he, of course, denied that, he, that that expression was ever used. But, I mean, one of the interesting twists in the court case was that, you know, we had to go through the, the evidence in fine detail and some of it, a lot of it was photographic evidence. And we found a, uh, a sign on, on the patrol room door that used the word rookie. When it, actually, there was a profanity added to that, uh, uh, but um, you know they were denying that it was ever used. But there it was in in, in black and white. So this and is effective, course, this know, effectively is executing injured prisoners and getting it, a younger member to do it. So they're yes. now part of the gang. And uh, and and what it what upset the soldiers who spoke against Robert Smith was not so much the execution of unarmed prisoners who represented no threat at all, but rather the fact that he was bullying young soldiers into doing it because, you know, getting a first kill they thought was uh, important. Um, 
the, the and they were right because um, these soldiers would come back from war not feeling triumphant and victorious, not feeling proud of themselves at all. If the last image they had was a terrified Afghan on his knees about to have his brains blown out, you know, it's it's not why they joined uh, the Australian Defence Force. And a, and a lot of them had a lot of trouble when they came back, a lot of psychological injury. And um, and indeed, it was the, it was that that worried so many soldiers that I think motivated them into um, ultimately speaking up. Of course, horrible, more so horrible for the Afghans who were murdered in the way they, they were. Some of the soldiers, you know, many people would continue to say, well, so what? You know, they were... They were combatants, but even that wasn't necessarily true. Well, certainly under the rules of engagement, it's wrong for any of us uh, to uh, to be murdering prisoners. We certainly thought so when the Nazis did it. We certainly thought so when the when the Japanese did it. So why is it okay if you've got an Australian uniform on? You know, um, but it, I have to say um, that the most notorious incident of all, which is called the which is the Spartan kicking that you referred to, um, that, that fellow wasn't a combatant at all. You know, he, he was an innocent Af- Afghan who'd come from another village to buy flour and, and, uh, and some shoes for his kids. Uh, he was a, it was a very, very unlucky day for him. Uh, I mean, essentially, when they came into these villages and they, they had an Afghan partner force with them. The Afghans would have a good idea who were the locals and who weren't. And if you weren't a local, there was an assumption that you were probably Taliban. A lot of times that might be right, but it wasn't right in this case. The guy was from a neighbouring village and uh, and uh, he got caught up in it. Um, Robert Smith was infuriated by by him as the evidence was divulged in court. Uh, it seemed like his biggest crime was that that he smiled at Robert Smith, or, or rather laughed, and uh, he got kicked off a cliff, and then in a appallingly cruel way, um, executed below. Gosh, that, um, and does Robert Smith accept that he did these things, but says that they were justified, or does he deny doing these things? No, he absolutely denies it. Um, he wasn't there for the, the judgment day. He was there for the other 110 days in court. But but when the ruling finally came down, much to the surprise of Nick McKenzie and myself, um, he, he didn't show up. And uh, then we learned that he was sunning himself in Bali on that day. Um, then he, he went to New Zealand, uh, he h- hung out with a friend, another one of the the soldiers who was with him, the one that the court revealed uh, decked out in a, a Ku Klux Klan outfit at one of their, um, you know, dress-up party days. When Robert Smith finally came back to Australia, he absolutely denied that anything, you know, he said he, said he had nothing to apologise for. The court had got it horrendously wrong and, um, you know, they're considering an appeal right now. It must have been, I don't know, Andrew, I don't know if you know Andrew, um, can you hear us, Andrew? I know you're having technical. Yes, I can. Yes, yes. No, no. I'm just listening, fascinated by the yes, story because, of course, there's certain sort of parallels with what's been happening in Britain too. Um, but yes, now I'm fascinated to see the, the repercussions. Um, well, defamation, of course. Andrew has been doing some amazing digging into all sorts of stories and, and risking the attention of lawyers. It's a scary thing to be sued, but I mean, it must be even scarier when one of Australia's richest tycoons 
has written a blank check to the man who's taking you to court. That must have been terrifying, Chris. Well, I think that Robert Smith probably thought he was going to win because he thought the game was about power rather than truth. I think he'd always felt that. He's, a, he's an imposing figure. You know, he's a large man. He used his size to intimidate others. He used his family connections to intimidate the officer corps. And um, and when the grumblings first began, in fact, with me, you know, um, he 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 lawyered up straight away. I always felt that if he didn't, you know, if he played it cool and basically said, "Look, you know, Chris, who cares? Soldiers always have different accounts of what goes on in combat. No big deal." I don't, you know, he if he professed no real antipathy towards those other soldiers, this might well have all gone away but no you know he lawyered it up uh, we ended up having three senior counsel against us you know it's unprecedented uh, the legal bills ran to about 25 million dollars um and the court case itself ran 110 days and uh, and this was all over about uh, a five-year period i mean covid um, obviously slowed it down quite quite a lot I'd have to say, frankly, to our advantage. Um, I wonder whether in the beginning, you know, we might have prevailed because uh, the evidence required to satisfy the editors that we had a story that we could defend is nothing like the editor, the evidence that is required to actually defend it in court um, over 110 days. You know, they they were intent on, on tearing our witnesses apart. They didn't think that the Afghan witnesses would be believed that, you know, they would be dismissed as being pro-Taliban. But um, I think that the court environment and the barracks room environment are very different places. I think in the barracks room he managed to get away with it because he was a bully, you know, his power prevailed. But in the courtroom, in in the cool, calm, collected light of truth, um, he struggled and... uh, and even though our witnesses did not want to be there, these are SAS people, you know, they, uh, they, they're never in the limelight and, uh, and they don't want to speak against their mates either who, who, who were supposed to have their back. Uh, so none of them wanted to be there. And in a sense, I think our witnesses had peak credibility because they didn't want to be there because there was no real motive for them to be um, getting in the box and telling lies, um, they they came across very well. We had, we had 20 witnesses. I mean, Nick McKenzie and I are being criticised quite a, a lot for, for scandal-mongering, et cetera. And people seem to forget that the actual allegations didn't come from us initially, but rather from his fellow soldiers, something like 20 of them. He assembled a, a similar number of soldiers Basically, it felt in the beginning like it was a numbers game that, uh, you know, if we if we could t- find 10 people who said war crimes occurred, they'd find 20 who said they didn't occur. And there were a lot of soldiers and probably still are a lot of soldiers that think that, that not ratting against your mate is more important than exposing war crimes. Uh, however, I mean, um, oh, what a tangled web. You, you know, if you start telling lies, you'll get caught out in a courtroom environment. And Justice Pisanko ended up bringing down a 700-page judgment, which, you know, I'd invite you to read, although it'll take you a week. Uh, but it's a, it's an exceptionally good judgment in my view. Gosh, well, you know, like I say, it's, it must have been so pressure, such high pressure. And we were 
It's just so full of admiration for what you achieved there, Chris. I mean, I guess there is one argument which I should at least air because some people will think it. You know, there is long tradition of these kind of allegations, proven otherwise, in all wars. Um, one thinks of Breaker Morant in terms of Australian military history. Um, you know, the old rule 303, get rid of people quietly, nobody needs to know. And, you know, is, it, is, this, is there an argument that it's wrong to apply kind of civilian values of justice to an environment that is chaotic and violent and deadly like a war zone? Um, I mean, I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this to you, but I'm sure you've got a really good answer. But Well, I mean, it is wrong. The, the, the army says it's wrong. The rules of engagement say we don't murder prisoners. We're still uh, signatories to the Geneva Convention. I think in a brutal war of survival, you know, horrible things happen all the time. But let's be clear, none of the incidents that we looked at were fog of war incidents. They weren't heat of the moment matters. They were cool, calculated killings. And as I said before, we we certainly didn't think that, that uh, the Nazis were right to line up civilians against a war and a wall and shoot them. And perhaps even more so in these small wars where it's very hard to find a metric for success, the, the, the most important measure is moral authority. We, we actually have to hold ourselves to a higher standard. Standards really matter. And it's not only a moral issue, it's also a strategic one. Every time they went into one of those villages and they killed an innocent farmer, they created 10 more Taliban um, it was it was actually strategically counterproductive as well. And let me say, these soldiers themselves were offended. I mean, there's there's a lot of human wreckage now. The soldiers who are persuaded to do the wrong thing, um, they have to live with their, their consciences, and many of them can't. They didn't join the the ADF and and sign up to that proud tradition of Australian soldiering to come back uh, and feel miserable. Um, they um, and and I'm I believe unromantically I hope that uh, the great majority of the soldiers over there weren't like that at all. They were extremely offended by this brutal thuggish uh, behaviour that did get out of control in some areas of special forces because they do have privileges that that the common soldiers don't have. They have a high degree of uh, autonomy. And now, you know, largely through through popular fiction, etc., they're being celebrated as kind of superheroes. There are so many movies around about sort of superhero special forces people. I think uh, in Australia, one of the problems was they began to believe their own bullshit. Brilliant. And has this brought forward other people, uh, other stories? People feel more confident about uh, speaking out now uh, because of this case in your investigations. I I hope so. I mean, it's it's still difficult. I mean, I think the benefit to the of the of this win we had before the courts is that there'll be fewer Ben Robert Smiths in the in the future. They may the Ben Robert Smith fact, factor goes into the lexicon, but it still took five years and twelve million bucks or something to to succeed with this story so you know i i think that there's a there's a deterrent still within the industry to doing tough investigative journalism and of course 
it never gets easier for the witnesses. But I, I'm glad that we can demonstrate that we have got an independent judiciary in Australia, that the nation uh, is prepared to handle the truth because there has been a lot of nonsense about uh, um, the, the Anzac myth over the years that that perhaps uh, uh, makes things dangerous for us. You know, we can't overestimate ourselves. We can't believe that we have this martial prowess that indeed we don't have if we're not well-trained and not well-resourced uh, and... Uh, I, um, uh, f- following the court case, following the Inspector General's inquiry, there now is a, a newly appointed Office of the Special Investigator, and they're looking at something like 25 incidents of alleged war crimes from Afghanistan. I think it's uh, Im- important that, you know, we come to terms with what actually happened. And for what it's worth, I understand that... Uh, British investigators have been here as well, um, um, shadowing the work of the Inspector General and uh, and picking up on whatever intelligence uh, uh, might be useful to their inquiries. Gosh, and did you ever feel at any point that you know, this wasn't going to, to work out uh, as you'd hoped? And had, did you have pressure put on you uh, in uh, outside the courtroom? Oh, absolutely. You know, one of the, I, I think it's a, it's a telling comment of investigative journalism that one of our least worries is the death threats. You know, you, you, you know, they, they, they become routine and you sort of don't even notice them after a while. But we got a lot of them. And I think that uh, unfortunately in that kind of digger diaspora, the, the, the sort of soldiers and their, and their, their wannabe hanger, hangers on, you know, uh, it was we were, we were seen as heretics, you know. How dare we we take on the sacred soldier? Um, um, and and probably the thing that was hardest for us, frankly, was being attacked by our own colleagues. You know, uh, it became also a media war. Uh, the Kerry Stokes, the arch defender of of Ben Robert Smith. It, is the head of the the seven network and uh and uh, the the nine his competitor where where we worked is its principal rival is uh the Murdoch press and uh so Nick McKenzie and I woke up day after day after day to attacks from the the Murdoch press um about our journalism that was pretty hard to take is there another Gosh. stage coming, Chris, or is, can you see an end to it now? Well, you know, you finish what you start, and I'll probably be dead by the time this this one finishes. It uh, it will go on, you know. The, Robert Smith uh, will, could well appeal. He's looking into an appeal right now. Um, beyond that, of course, there. There is the likelihood of criminal charges. I mean, in a civil court, uh, a justice determined that four murders had occurred. Beyond that, there was a lot of evidence that emerged through the court of witness intimidation that will probably also find its way, I would imagine, to a, a criminal court. And as I mentioned, the Office of the Special Investigator has been doing some widespread uh, investigations in, to, to to, to in the in the direction of Robert Smith and beyond to other special forces soldiers, uh, uh, the the Four Corners program uh, ran a, a report 
about two years back now where that we actually had helmet cam vision of an accident an Afghan being evidently executed in the field. You know, he doesn't uh, um, doesn't appear to have any kind of weapons and a soldier stands over him with a, an M4 rifle and yells out to the man behind, you know, do you want me to drop this C? And uh, and eventually does. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the world has seen that. So, uh, and I think... I think that woke up a lot of people. You know, when we were reporting in in print, essentially, um, people read the words, but there was something really rather extraordinary in seeing it for yourself. And I think that turned a corner somewhat when when that helmet cam vision was revealed, uh, but still in all... Uh, to this day, there are lots of people that d- deny that um, and there was any wrongdoing despite this evidence. Well, we're getting out to the end of our little uh, allotted Zoom time. I, Andrew and I have been lucky to have some great journalists on our little podcast so far, but I'm not sure anybody has uh, taken on quite the burden that you did and the risks that you did. And um, it's incredible to your credit. And anybody who's listening or watching, Chris's books are really worth your time. And we'll put a link up to that too in the little podcast. Um, and thank it's you. Powerful story. It shows you the power of, of 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 a journalist. I mean, it's you know, take my hat off to you because it's a long period to sustain an investigation. Um, yes, it was. Um, it was reassuring. You know, we talk about speaking truth to power, and in fact, I think that's that pretty much describes the contest. Uh, on the other side, they thought that power would win. On our side, you know, we had to believe that truth would win. And uh, so far, uh, we, we got a win. You, you, you never feel like you've really won in a defamation action. It's uh, There are lots of losers. But uh, I know that I would feel a hell of a lot le- worse if if we hadn't uh, got that, that judgment. Well, thanks again for your time, Chris, and good luck with both the death threats and the death adders. Uh, good on you, mate. Thank you. <laughs> thanks Take very care. much. Thank you, brilliant. Chris. Good luck. Thank you for listening to the Scandalmongers podcast. This has been a podcast world production. You can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org, placing Scandalmongers in the heading, or via our social media links within the show's bio. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. 
For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.